0: He said, vary the industry if you can, vary the size of the board in terms of how much revenue they bring in and where they are in their maturity, right? Because you learn a lot by doing that. And I think sometimes when you are just in one industry, you get stuck in that mindset and that perspective. And that's why I can say, I bring different perspectives to a board, which is appealing for a lot of boards because, because you can get groupthink when you only have that exposure to that industry and that solutions for that industry, when in reality there's solutions in other industries that might actually spur further debate.
1: Welcome to How Women Inspire, where women lead, invest, and give. I'm your host Julie Castor Abrams, founder and CEO of How Women Lead, and managing partner of the venture firm How Women Invest. Feminist, social justice warrior mother, friend of 50,000 plus badass women, and an expert at helping top executive women get on boards and break down barriers for women entrepreneurs, investors, and social impact activists. In this podcast, we interview women influencers and leaders from across the globe who are in the C-suite, founding companies, investing, and agents of change. We'll share stories of how women lead, We'll provide insights and data, tips you can put into action, and get to know the women who have fiercely and unabashedly stepped into their power in leadership and opened doors for other women like you. We discuss topics ranging from the journey of getting a board seat, how we can counter cultural frameworks that change the way the world views women leaders, what we're doing to close the gender funding gap and driving equity for women in all aspects of life and career. My goal is that after every episode, you walk away feeling inspired, unstoppable, ready to level up and step into your power and influence. I want to break down the cultural narratives that hold us back collectively and those messy messages you heard that are taking up way too much of your brain space. I want you to know you're invited in, because I know that together we can change the culture, change opportunities, and create the future we want for our daughters and sisters and friends. This is our time. Are you in? Welcome to today's episode of How Women Inspire. Today's guest is someone very dear to my heart, who I have known for almost two decades, one of the most kind, responsible, disciplined philanthropists and leaders that I've ever met, Evelyn Dilsaver is the CPA by training. Spent the first 17 years of her career in audit and finance as and was a controller for U.S. Trust for Charles Schwab as the CFO and Chief Administrative Officer for U.S. Trust, that, which is a wealth management firm. She then actually transitioned and became president and CEO of the Charles Schwab Investment Management firm. She was responsible for all aspects of that business. She grew it to over $200 billion while generating a billion dollars in revenue. Evelyn was one of the first Asian Women Board Directors in the United States of America. She has served on several public and private boards, and currently she serves on the public company boards of Tempur-Sealy, Health Equity, and Ortho Clinical Diagnostics. Of course, she's the audit committee chair for all of them, and she serves on large private companies like a global consulting firm, Protivity and REI, and she previously served on large private company boards, including Blue Shield of California, and she's played leadership roles in really important nonprofit social impact organizations around the country. She has been the chair of the Commonwealth Club, such a great resource for all of us, the Blue Shield Foundation, the co-chair of Women Corporate Directors, and she was the chair of my board at the Women's Initiative for Self-Employment. I am so honored to have you as our guest today, Evelyn.
0: How are you doing? I'm doing great, Julie, and thank you for having me on here. What a great introduction.
1: Okay, Evelyn, so you've had such an illustrious career. I imagine there have been some bright times and some challenging times. Do you have a theme
0: song that you listen to during your roller coasters? You know, Julie, I will be controversial in that I didn't have a theme song. Ah. Whenever I had uh, tremendous challenges, I would go for a walk. Ah. And luckily, we lived in the East Bay of uh, San Francisco area. And so I would walk the hills and clear my mind. And really think about why I reacted the way I did to some of the challenging situations. And is there a different way to react? Part of this came about because when I was working at Schwab, uh, in the early days, our COO had a heart attack at the very young age of 32 while he was playing basketball. And he realized a lot of it had to do with his type A behavior, which was a really intense, get it done, do everything right now kind of behavior. impatience with um, things that were going on around them. And so he made everybody take a type B class, which was all about de-stress and relaxing and really thinking through. And the funny part is he made everybody in the company take it. But after about a week, the majority of people quit because they were too busy. <laughs> yeah. yeah, But I stuck with it through that. I learned to control my emotions and uh, take those walks rather than just listening to music. And having said that, I grew up playing the piano, classical music, uh, kind of like your daughter plays classical music. And so I have a love for all kinds of music. So there isn't one song that really pumps me up. The
1: beauty of, you know, being out in nature and breathing it in is, is we all know it's so good for us. I know you're also an athlete. Volleyball, I know has been one of your things. Can you tell us a little bit about how important that has been in your life?
0: Sure. I started playing volleyball like sixth, seventh grade. And then when I got into high school, I played varsity volleyball because my coach recognized I had great hands for setting the ball. And even though I'm only five foot one, I had a good jump at that point in time. So I continued playing. Uh, Even when I finished college, I would play in volleyball leagues with players who used to play USVBA, United States Volleyball, which is a precursor. To the club teams today, went to the junior national league championships to try and get in, but we lost in the early rounds. And the fun part is, I was able to take that. I had three boys, and when they were in grammar school, coach girls volleyball for 10 years, and then coach boys sand volleyball for about 10 years. So it made a connection with my boys that were very different than being mom, right? When you're a coach, it's a very different connection that you have with your boys, and all of them played in, through high school. And the fun part is as they got older, I was able to play with them on the adult league that we had.
1: You know, the research is pretty clear that says that women who are athletes are 85% of all C-suite women uh, were athletes at some point in time. So do you feel like there's a story or a lesson that you carry with you from your volleyball days? Something about just
0: the power of slamming that? that? <laughs> I wasn't a great spiker, Julie, because I couldn't get over the net. But having said that, I've always advised young girls to get into sports. I have two granddaughters now. Uh, They are into sports, but it's a different kind of sports. Mm -hmm. So I advise them to do that because it teaches you when to be a leader and when to be a team player, Mm -hmm. how to lose gracefully and how to win gracefully, because it counts both ways. Right. And you take that into life your companies and you take that into your boardrooms. It doesn't stop.
1: Well, I've I've seen you in action. Uh, you're my board chair for a long time and I feel like that's exactly what I see from you. You sit back and you listen and then you step up in with strength, but you uh you're so balanced in how you lead, which is really wonderful. So let's talk a little bit about this really interesting transition from being a CPA to moving almost laterally in your career that ended up becoming one of the best things I think that you've ever done, probably. Tell us a little bit about how that decision-making happened. What was that really like?
0: When I was working for a bank and I was the controller, I had a meeting with an individual who was president of his company, but started out as a CPA. And I always thought the path... A little naive. My parents came here from the Philippines, so we're what is that first generation or second generation? And Dad was always clear that we were Americans, so I did not learn the Filipino language. But having said that, they didn't really know the uh, how things worked in the United States. So I always thought when I was a CPA that the path was going to be clear. You know, I was going to be CFO for a company, and then I met this guy who was a CPA, but he was president of his company. And I thought, wow, I didn't think you could do that. And that started me thinking down the path of there is a different path. So uh, when I was at the bank, I moved into managing branches because it gave me a a breadth of skills that I didn't have around sales and and business relationships. And then I went to Schwab and I was the controller for about four years. And then again, I decided, you know, I'm going to continue to pursue this path. And I really wanted, my goal was to be, in a decision-making role. I didn't care what it was, but I really wanted to be in a decision-making role. So I started to move around the company to pick up skills I didn't have. And one of those, of course, it was marketing and business development and strategy, but I got a chance to work with Dave Patrick, who was co-CEO of Schwab at the time. And it was a totally undefined job. I remember telling him, I'll do this for 18 months, because I think beyond that, people forget who you are and your skill set." And I'm not carrying your bags. So this is really about learning what it means to be in the C-suite and the skills that you need. And he taught me three things. One is the CEO. You need to surround yourself with people who can tell you the truth and tell you different points of view. Because if you only hear one point of view, your decisions can be not as good as if you hear multiple points of view. So that's what I brought to him was multiple points of view. The second one is... As a leader, you really need to focus on inspiring the people that work for you and bringing in great people. Focus, then, again, is understanding and listening really well so that you can inspire. And the third one is making room in your calendar for the things that really move the company forward. Most people focus on the most urgent things that are right in front of them, but never spend the time to really make room to focus on the things that really move the company forward. So it's a leadership style I've taken with me as I've moved around the company. Do you block calendar time or how do you do that? My husband says I never say no, but part of it is saying, no, I'm not going to do that. And really picking and choosing the things that you're willing to do and surrounding yourself with people who are willing to take that off. You know, the things that are uh, important Bridget, but not necessarily pushing for the long term. The most strategic. You mentioned that you, your parents are immigrants. Are you an immigrant? I was born here in the States. Yep. Letterman General Hospital in San Francisco, which of course no longer exists.
1: (laughs) I ask because, you know, there's some unique elements of being an immigrant, certainly being in an immigrant family. So what is it that you, that sort of your background contributed in terms of your perspective and how you show up? Some people has really fueled how they are in the world. That been a you know,
0: my, um, my dad ran away from home and joined the U.S. Navy when he was 17. So he was 20 years. So I'm a Navy brat. And so I'm used to moving around from place to place, which we did when I was younger. And through that, you learn to be independent, make friends easily, and know that you're going to survive. Right. And then my mom was actually a CPA in the Philippines. And she stopped working when we came here so she could raise the three of us, my brother and my sister and myself. And, but there was never a question about education. We were going to get a college degree. There was never a question that we were going to be self-sufficient. And so I don't think I had the same messages that sometimes you get when you're an immigrant uh, about how far you could reach. It was always you can reach anything you want. Right. There and was never have. a hesitation. So about
1: that. proud of you. I can only imagine. Do you think they even understand how important you are? No. <laughs> yeah. Right. They're like, could you please unload the dishwasher, Evelyn? Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> it's always interesting to see. Yeah. When you try uh-huh. to
0: explain what you do, they get that uh-huh. glazed look on their face. Exactly. Uh-huh. Yes. Exactly. Right.
1: My my son came back from college and went to an event where I was speaking in front of three or four hundred people. He goes, Mom, sometimes I forget you're a person. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Personhood right here. So, so you're on a bunch of boards right now. How are you balancing all of that? How do you create the space to be so strategic and forward-looking? Uh, because you got, that's a lot of things to juggle, a lot of people to hold in your heart.
0: Yes. Well, I'm lucky in that my portfolio is diverse. So it, spans consumer products and healthcare and fintech and consulting. And so I am learn constantly learning. But what I also bring is perspective, and that's how I talk about it. Because I span multiple industries and I chair audit committee, the issues are really the same. And so you can leverage the things that you learn from one to the other. And some industries are ahead of others in terms of their control processes and so forth. And so you can take those learnings and adapt them to the particular industry that you're in. I'm also lucky in that they have different year ends. So it gets to spread out the workload and it's not all at the same time. And I don't take on a board unless the calendar meshes, because I believe once you've made that commitment, you need to attend 100% and be there. And as audit chair, I also do one-on-ones with the controllers, with CFOs, The external auditors and internal auditors once a month so that I stay abreast of what's happening in the organization, one, and two, to develop the relationship. I mean, it could be a 15-minute call, but it's so that when something does happen in the organization, they feel good about being able to call me and tell me what's happening before they've come up with a solution, right? And that's the important part. It's no surprise, especially when you're in that audit chair role. Yeah, absolutely. So for those of
1: you out there who are wondering about how people sort of think about a portfolio for their board, I'd love to hear from you. Why is it so important that you're in different industries? You've talked to me about that a couple of times. You know, you don't want all financial services or all healthcare. What why is that?
0: Yeah, the reason I like the diverse portfolio. In fact, Dave Patrick was the one that gave me that advice when I started down this path. He said, vary the industry if you can vary the size of the board in terms of how much revenue they bring in and where they are in their maturity right because you learn a lot by doing that mm-hmm. and i think sometimes when you are just in one industry you get stuck in that mindset and that perspective and that's why i can say i bring different perspectives to a board which is appealing for a lot of boards because because you can get groupthink when you only have that exposure to that industry and solutions for that industry, when in reality, there's solutions in other industries that might actually spur further debate. In addition, as you think about strategy, there are strategies, for example, what Uber has done can be applied to other industries, but people don't think about it that way, right? So when we were when Blue Shield, and Blue Shield is a very forward-thinking organization in trying to change how healthcare is delivered to consumers, But in order to do that, they have to change the whole ecosystem. It's not just Blue Shield. And we we talked about it in terms of Uber changed the whole ecosystem. It wasn't just how you drive a car. They changed how you paid for it, how you as a consumer interacted, and that's the way we need to think about it. So having a diverse portfolio brings you a broader perspective into an organization or an industry that could be uh, too insular in their thinking.
1: You've heard me say it before. My goal is for you to run the world. And let me tell you why. It's not just because I think you're fabulous badass and you know that I do. It is actually protective for all of us. When you have diversity on a board, for example, product recalls happen three times faster. Companies perform better. It's better for people, it's better for profits, and it's better for the planet. We need you. To join a corporate board and we need you to know when to advocate for it in your day job october 16th through the 20th how women lead is hosting our extremely successful fourth annual get on board week this week is full of virtual programming content rich but also connecting, connecting, connecting. And we know 85% of all board searches are word of mouth and through connections. We wanna connect you with private equity firms that are seeking board members. We wanna connect you with other women board members who've already done it, who are being tagged and can't take all the board seats that are coming their way. We will have board opportunities that we will share with you. Really, truly, this is our way to connect and propel you. This is one week. But what happens is people connect with people on LinkedIn or they create mastermind groups that they support each other all year long. I want you to step up and be part of the solution. My daughter needs you on the board. But I also want to inspire you to think about all the women around you, where you can be the person who inspires her and says, I see you on a board. I think you should be on a board. Check it out. Come and explore. Invite 10 friends. Tell them that you believe in them. It's the greatest gift you can give. Somebody did it for you. And I want to encourage you to do it for another woman. I look forward to seeing you at Get On Board Week so we can get thousands of women on boards. This year, our focus beyond the private boards that we've always focused on, we're adding the private board space. It's time. Thanks for your partnership. Send the letter back down and help another woman get into action. Well, I know that women in menopause now have a better bed. Uh, that's one of the things that you brought to one of your boards. What are some of your favorite board stories? Like the biggest impact or those moments where you're like, Oh, like I I got this.
0: Uh, yes. So you're talking about my temper Sealy board. And yes, we do have a great bed, It blows air up through the bed. That's the newest addition. But uh, I introduced them to a company. I met a a gentleman at the NACD, National Association of Corporate Directors, conference. He was working with a small startup in Santa Cruz that tracked your sleep and told you whether you slept better or not, right? It fit between the mattress and the foundation and others have done this one. But I thought, wow, you know, Temper is a technology kind of company trying to make your sleep better. Wouldn't it be great if you could know how you slept? So I visited this uh, company down in Santa Cruz with the head of sales, and we brought it back to temper. Now they have a bed that actually tracks your sleep. You can look at it on your um, connects with Alexis or any of those devices that then tells you how you sleep. But the even better thing is it helps you if your partner snores. Mine does. It actually raises, senses the snoring and raises the bed. So it's just a few inches. So it stops you from snoring. I know, I know. It's great. And initially when they brought it on board, it took a couple of years to get it to work right with all the other things going on with the mattresses, but it's now one of their top sellers. So I think you need to continue to look out for things that will help change your industry and the perception of your company. Well,
1: I love that. I mean, you're such an interesting person because you're like the audit committee chair. And then you're also like on the cutting edge of some innovation. And is innovation something that you thrive in seeking out? Like, how do you play in this sort of, you know, growth and innovation space?
0: You know, Julie, it's funny. When I was a controller for the bank, the CFO told me as part of my feedback, you know, everybody loves you because you can execute and deliver but you're not very strategic. And I thought, hmm, what does that mean? Because, you know, you can have strategy, but if you can't execute, it doesn't matter how good your strategy is, right? So I've always been the kind of person that really believed in execution, but I really pondered that thought about strategy. And strategy to me now is really thinking about how does this industry, how is this industry going to change? And what do we do to prepare for that change? You may not know what it is, so, so let me give you an example. I'm on the Board of Health Equity, which is a provider of uh, the largest health savings accounts in the country. And it's really a way for people to save to pay for their health care and for retirement, if you will. That's probably the best tax savings vehicle around. Having said that, is that the vehicle that will be around 10 years from now? Is there a different way that people are going to save for paying for health care? Which, you know, you spend 80% of your Healthcare expenses in the last six months of your life. So you might as well save up for it now, right? Uh-huh. So is there a different vehicle? I don't know. But if there is, how are we preparing ourselves for that?
1: Well, I feel like you're like the best question answer I've ever met. I mean, obviously, people talk about that being an important skill in the boardroom, but I feel like you ask it in such a respectful way that really encourages people to sort of push their thinking. How did you learn how to do that? Is it naturally something you do or did somebody, you know, support you and,
0: and model it for you? Yeah, that leads to another story. I think in the boardroom, somebody once said it's like being a grandparent. You come in, you give them advice they don't want, and then you eat all their food and then you walk away, which (laughs) I thought that's a pretty funny way to, to do this. But having said that, some of the best boards that I've had have people who know how to ask a good question, to ask the insightful question, which is better than an insightful comment, I think, because the insightful question generates discussion. And it's the, through the discussion that you actually can come up with solutions and agreement. So a uh, great story. The CEO of Blue Shield, uh, we were telling him he needed a chief operating officer and we kept insisting you need a COO. And I, he, he kept resisting. And I finally said, so how can we really help you? He said, let me get back to you on that. And when he did, he said, you know, there's, I hear two questions. The first one is, what's my succession plan? And I could have an answer for that. The second one is, how do I get things done when I'm not here? And I don't necessarily need to have a COO to get things done. I can create an operating committee, right? That gets things done while I'm gone. So which question are you asking? Um, Because I could have two different answers. And I thought, wow, that's really powerful. So we ended up creating an operating committee because what we were worried about was, how do you get things done? So I've learned to ask the question, here's what I'm worried about. How are you responding? How are you going to solve that? The funny part is I take this to my other board and they're all saying, John needs a chief operating officer. And uh, I stopped and I said, well, wait a second. Are we asking him what his succession plan is? Or are we asking him whether, how he gets the stuff done when he's not there? And they all stopped and looked at me and go, wow, that's a good question. Two minutes later it was, he needs a COO. So sometimes, you know, when you're on a board, you're on there because of your leadership skills. And it's hard not to be directive, and what you have to learn to do is to ask those insightful questions that generate the discussion. And I've learned that in space.
1: Yeah, I feel like I learned that the hard way and probably still in the learning journey. You know I think yeah. back, and I kind of want to apologize for anyone who was on board with me when I was 30 years old. Uh, so OK, how did you get on your first board? How did, I, it sounds like Dave Patra planted the seed for you, but what was your first corporate board seat, and how did it come about?
0: Yes, my first board seat was on Long's Drugs, which uh, many of those in the Bay Area know that name, um, a very famous pharmacy like a Duane Reed on the East Coast. I was approached by a recruiter who saw my name on San Francisco's 100 most influential, San Francisco Business Times 100 most influential list, liked my background, called another recruiter who knew me, Eunice Asani, and Eunice recommended me highly. So we met. She says, I think you're going to be right for long struts, which I was. I joined their board. I had to get permission from Chuck Schwab to be able to do that. And then um, we got along so well, the recruiter and I, that she put me on the board of Eric Postal, which was team clothing. And uh, when they saw my bio, they said, oh, she knows nothing about retail. And the recruiter said, but you have to meet her because her, she is all about the aero culture. So for me, it's all about the culture, because when you're a board member, you only meet four or five times a year, or in my case, four or five times live, and then one-on-ones monthly, but you still don't know what's going on. And the culture is so important to make you feel good about the decisions that get made in the organization. So I met with the team at Arrow, the stall. And at the end of the interview, I said, so are you worried about my inability or lack of retail skills? And they said, nope. And so I got on that board. So a lot of, actually, a lot of my board seats are through networks, uh, more than recruiters, uh, people who know me and have recommended me, or if a recruiter finds me and gets me on uh, to meet with people, my connections. I got on the Temper sealy board through a a friend of a friend. And when I met with the um, chair of the board, he says, I feel like I already know you because Dave and I are in the U.S. Ski Team together, a board, and um, he says, if I can get you, we'll be lucky. So you just never know, you know, those relationships you build help you get onto the boards that you want to be on.
1: Well, you you said two things. I just want to underscore. First, you were on the list of the most influential women. So that branding, making sure you're visible, that people can find you is critical. And then, of course, having great relationships with people where they can um, affirm your great leadership skills. So, so you speak a lot on boards. Tell us a little bit about your crystal ball, what your crystal ball is saying. There's been massive change going from what a lot of people would say is mostly CEOs and CFOs on boards. Now the composition, a lot of, uh, you know, the massive shift in terms of also gender and race in terms of board representation, how has that affected the boardroom? And what do you see as coming down the pike?
0: Well, I, Julie, I know you are passionate about this, which is the diversity on boards. And I have seen more and more diversity on the boards. In fact, it's not just diversity in terms of gender, but it's also diversity in terms of ethnicity and skill set. So some of the new skill sets that, that boards are demanding are chief human resource officers because they're recognizing that the organization and the culture needs to be thought at a very strategic level. And having that voice in the room is really important. The other big thing is technology. Um, Many boards are now setting up technology committees, so they're looking for expertise in digital, cybersecurity, and technology transformation, because many companies really have to go through that. And cybersecurity is a pending, looming threat out there that every company is going to face at some point in time. So having that skill set on the board is critical. And I think the other thing is boards are starting to move more towards term limits Age limits, some version of that. I'm actually a fan of term limits because I think you can be 80 years old. And depending on your involvement in life, your perspective can be tremendous. And so it's not to me an age thing. It's a a number of years you're on the board. So for many of my boards, we are looking at term limits, say 10 to 12 years. Mm -hmm. And then you refresh the board. And with refreshing the board, you bring in new skill sets, Mm -hmm. such as what I've been talking about.
1: Well, one of the things you mentioned earlier is groupthink is dangerous. I know that you have often been the first and the only on a board. So, how have you seen that? Have you ever been in, a, in an environment where your voice wasn't heard and groupthink was the name of the game and it had to evolve? Like, tell us a little bit about, about how you've seen that evolve.
0: Yes. Well, uh, when I joined Temp Temporizing- only woman. Um, when I joined Health Equity, I was the only woman. We now have three on that board and we have three on the Temper board. Um, and Temper is a small board. There's only nine of us. So it's, it's nice. Blue Shield, I think we have 13 board members and over half are women. We have five committees and women lead four of them and we have a woman chair of the board. So I've seen it change dramatically. When you're the only voice in the room, you learn to ask Questions rather than be directives. So that's why I talked about earlier about asking the thought-provoking question, and then you find alliances in the boardroom—people who who recognize that women can add a good voice to the group. And sometimes it could be the oldest guy in the room, so surprises the heck out of me. I was in one board meeting where we were talking about how we advance and bring up leaders in the organization that are, are are different, whether it's a gender or racial ethnicity. The CEO was saying, well, I just kind of look out for them. So there was no formal program. And the oldest gentleman in the room, it was in his late 70s said, that's not good enough. And I, and I thought, yay, I'm not the only voice here saying you need to have a more structured leadership program. And, and not just because as CEO, you want to pick somebody out, right? So you have to find the people that just like in anything else in business, you have to find people that are aligned with how you think and continue to foster that relationship so that you represent more than just one voice. So
1: when you're on a board and it has half women and five, four of the five committees are run by women, do you see any different energy or the conversation's different? Are people preparing? Supposedly, the research says people upgame more. Everybody prepares more when you have diverse voices in a room, as opposed to relying on Joe always having the
0: answer. You know, I'm lucky. And and part of that is uh, because I pick companies based on their culture. And when I ask, when I do interview, I do ask what the board dynamic is like, because I don't want to be on a board where you voices are shut out and there's one powerful voice in the that just not doesn't make it fun. So I am lucky that way. I think does the conversation change in the room? Uh yes, I would have to say it's much more aware of the cultural ramifications of some of the decisions and that you have discussions about that. We're much more aware of body language in the room. And so you can talk about The tenseness, if there is tenseness in the room, in executive session, because we always have executive sessions both before and after, and the executive sessions are without the management team, and in many cases, all cases, without the CEO, with and without the CEO. So you can have those really strong discussions about people and culture rather than just the business.
1: So you have had just an extraordinary career and still, lots more to go. What do you think are some of the biggest, either skills or things that you've learned that have benefited you in in throughout your your life and your
0: career? Uh, well, I think you know, being a good listener. It's amazing how many people don't really listen because they're so trying to prepare for an answer. The second one is, uh, besides listening, is having empathy for the individual. Third is really all about accountability for yourself and then holding others accountable for what they say they're going to do. And I think that's what true leaders really do is they hold others accountable and then they care about the people that work with them and for them. And it it transcends business life. It also applies to anything that you do in your, in your home life, right? In your personal life. And um, to me, that's what makes... Bit different, And the other thing I would have to say is curiosity. Not enough people are curious. It's amazing how many times I've met people and they talk all about themselves, but they never ask. So what do you do? Yeah. Not that that's important. Or what are you passionate about? Or, you know, what do you like to do right outside of work? There's no curiosity. Mm-hmm. Uh, that to me is amazing. Like, would you maybe be a knitter or something yeah. like that? Something like that, right? <laughs> do you make jewelry? What do you like to do when you're not working?
1: <laughs> well, I, I say that because I know that that's been a, a fun thing that you that you have done. So, um outside of your boards, what are you doing these days? You're hugging your grandbabies, uh-huh. um, and
0: you're are you still knitting? I'm still knitting. When I left Schwab, I, you know, I started knitting when the boys were young and they were all playing sports. So when my oldest was in a swim team for eight hours, what do you do? Right? I remember. I, keep your heads busy for that one or two minutes that they're actually swimming, right? And then um, the other two played baseball. So it was six hour doubleheader games and I'm sitting there and I needed to do something. So uh, I took up knitting. And then when I left Schwab, I took the master knitting courses to be able to be a master knitter. So I still do it for relaxation, and when I'm on airplanes for six hours, you know, there's only so much reading I can do, and then I can knit.
1: Well, there's some data that says that creative activity is actually really important for your brain to be strategic. So once you started knitting, maybe that's when you sort of crossed over to the strategy <laughs> goddess.
0: It um, could have I'm been. You're going to say something <laughs> else, <laughs> and then I took the, up uh, beading. So okay. you know, making gorgeous jewelry. My husband and I love to travel. So we travel a lot for the Commonwealth Club and just on our own with a lot of different countries, just one to expose the our family to the culture. So we always traveled when the kids were young to Italy and to Europe and uh, England and uh, Asia. And I do a lot to South America. So I think that exposure to culture, different cultures, again, gives you a much broader perspective and appreciation for what this world has to offer.
1: Indeed.
0: You you just talked about the Commonwealth Club. You have led in some
1: really important and exciting philanthropic organizations. How did you pick those organizations and what has it meant to you in your life?
0: Uh, You know, Julie, my passions are about empowering women, which I've always done ever since I started coaching girls in volleyball and then you and I were on a Women's Initiative for Self-Employment. It was really all about empowering women and you empower through education. The Commonwealth Club is really about educating and giving a broad perspective for people across all dimensions. And the belief is if you get exposed to different points of view, you can't help but either change your mind or rethink how you do things. I'm on the board of Cal State East Bay, which is my alma mater. And again, it's because it's about education, but Cal State East Bay happens to be one of the largest diverse communities, campuses in the United States outside of Hawaii. And about 60% of our students are first generation college grads. So for me, education is so important in lifting people up to what they, their full potential. Women Corporate Directors is also about making sure that we help others become in the seats of power, if you will, through uh, mentoring. So that's been my passion and that's how I select. I think the nonprofits do take up way more time than the for-profits do. do. Do But I I get a lot out of it in terms of um, seeing people lift themselves out of where they are. And they're both, whether it's their thinking or their economic status do better for the world.
1: Yeah. Well, you and I, um, for many years, worked with low-income women to start their own businesses and did some financing for them. I hope that you um, are experiencing this, but I get an email or a call at least once a week from one of our alums who are just doing great work. A couple people who've sold their companies after 20 years of running them. One of our big sell Betty is actually at that Chase Stadium. I don't know if you've seen them at the basketball games. Wow. A number of our uh, the women that you helped so long ago are are helping other people and having great uh, great success over time. So so the impact that you've had has been has had a huge ripple effect in the world, and I hope you feel really great about that.
0: You know, I heard a great quote, Julie. I, I can't remember who said this, but um, God gave us two hands: one to lift ourselves up with, and the second one to lift somebody else up.
1: Yeah. Well, and I know that you liked buying jewelry from some of those entrepreneurs as well. So uh, if we had a room full of a bunch of eight-year-old girls,
0: what would your words of wisdom be to those girls? Wow. Eight years old. You know, I don't know that they really know what they want to be. So you can be anything you want to be, I think is really what I would have to say. But I don't think they know what they want to be at that age. And even at 18, you don't know what you want to be, right? Very few do. Sometimes even at the age of 30, you don't know what you want to be. But and and saying to somebody, pursue your passion. Most people don't know what their passion is. And you don't find out about that till later. So I would have to say, explore all possibilities. Mm -hmm. Because when a door closes on you, another one opens. Mm -hmm. And that's... Through my, uh, throughout my whole life. when Whenever something closed on me and I thought, oh my God, what do I do now? And I take that walk. I realized there's another opportunity I hadn't even thought about yeah. that presented itself. So it even happens on my boards. When a board goes away, like with Arrow, Aero went away. I thought, oh, I won't be on another, another board. I, but two days later, I get a call from a recruiter who's like, wow, how did that happen? So I think, I think if you have that attitude about being open to all possibilities, then you will find that passion and people and the universe finds you. I'm really not normally mystical (laughs) or spiritual that way, but I really do believe that. Yeah. Karma. There is a thing
1: out there. Uh, Ever since I met you, one of the things that just has always impacted me is your centeredness, your thoughtfulness, and how you make everybody around you feel elevated. And I know that uh, you've had a massive impact on me and my career and where I stand in the world today. I want to say thank you for that. One of the things that we've done is we sort of codified what people were experiencing when we were getting together. We call it a credo. It's really a countercultural invitation to say, let's not do that stuff that's been not good for us. Uh, if there's one of these that might uh, ring the most true for you or or a story or an example, I'd love to hear it. Be fierce advocates for each other. We just need to finish that mean girl chapter and no, not do that anymore. Say yes to helping right. each other and making introductions. Reinforce her voice when she speaks up and isn't being heard perhaps, potentially. And then being unabashedly visible yourself, like standing in the limelight so those little girls and young women are, are, can see you. So is there any, anything that...
0: You know, Julie, I believe on all four of them. It's amazing. And I think the saying yes and helping others is, is a big part of my brand and why I think people know me because I do try to broaden the network and make sure that others get the same opportunity that I've had. And being fierce advocates, that's really important in the boardroom because I like, you know, when sometimes it still happens in the boardroom. A woman will say something, it gets ignored. Five minutes later, a man will say exactly the same thing and everybody goes, oh yeah, that's right. So I make it a habit when another woman in the room says something, I will add on to that and say, you know, I really like Jane's idea and here's how I would add to that. So it's really additive and it starts the conversation, but it also acknowledges that she said something. And I think more of us need to do that. And that's how you get your not only your voice heard, but others' voices heard in the room and start the discussion. Fantastic. And ultimately, everybody wins. Everybody wins. You're right. You're right. But you've got a great credo because all of those four is the things that I also do. And, you know, Julie, you've taught me. So remember when I used to give speeches, I only gave the numbers and you gave the heart. And you taught me that you need both. To be able to be impactful, so thank you. It's a
1: long-term friendship, and and I just admire you so very much, Evelyn. Thank you so much. If if people want to get in touch with you, or if there's anyone has a question, should they find you on social media? Is there is there a way? Sure. To LinkedIn.
0: Point? I'm not a I'm not a huge user of LinkedIn, so it might take a while to get back to you. But yes, you can find me on LinkedIn. Excellent.
1: Thank you very much for being with us today. If you want to hear other discussions or podcasts like this, you can sign up on our website at howwomenlead.com, or you can go to LinkedIn or any of our other uh, podcast resources and look for How Women Lead, all one word. Thank you very much for joining us today. I know you benefited a great deal from hearing from Evelyn Dillsaver, and I look forward to seeing all of you in the boardroom in the future. Thank you, Evelyn. Thanks, Julie. And with that, I want to thank you all for listening to today's episode of How Women Inspire. And because your inspiration should not stop when this podcast ends, head over to our website, howwomenlead.com. Follow us on LinkedIn at How Women Lead and subscribe or follow on your favorite podcast app to find out how you can proactively take charge and step into your power through our workshops and activism in our loving network. We want to propel you. See you next time, ladies. And remember to be unabashedly visible.